This is about the Constitution of the United States and the facts that lead to the President's violation of his oath of office. And as a Catholic, I resent your using the word hate in a sentence that addresses me. I don't hate anyone. I was raised in a way that is full, a heart full of love and always prayed for the President. And I still pray for the President. I pray for the President all the time. So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. It's episode 16 of How We Win. All over our country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now. The best antidote to anxiety is action. 2020 is almost here, and we want you to join the party. On today's episode, Christine Pelosi. She's got a new book out about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, her mother, and she shares some great anecdotes about how Speaker Pelosi operates in leadership and that viral moment when she walked out of the White House in her orange coat and sunglasses. Deal with it. That's what her face said. <laughs> and we're going to talk about actions that you can take to get ready for 2020 and how you can help call out the Trump administration for cutting food assistance to hundreds of thousands of people. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is, is How, how We, we Win. win. Oh, can I tell you about somebody I met this weekend? Yeah. Okay, so we went to – you and I went to a whole bunch of organizing stuff over the weekend. Right. And um, at one of the events I was at, I, I was um, sitting at a table next to this 88-year-old woman that's going to be relevant in a second, <laughs> okay. um, who's an activist. And this group must be listening to the podcast because one of their icebreaker questions was, what are you hopeful for oh. for the future? Which is what we always ask our guests. Yeah, they got that from us for sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm talking to my new friend um, and I ask her, you know, what are you hopeful for about thinking about the future? And she says, that I'll be dead before President Trump is reelected. Oh. <laughs> wow. I didn't know whether to laugh or be like, <laughs> please hold on. <laughs> Just, you know, well, we, I hope, we need I a hope, little bit of levity I, in I it. Hope she was she, joking. I hope she lives long enough to see him not... Uh, to see and a new to see president. A, a new president, a Democratic president, <laughs> take the White House. I hope she lives to see that. Yeah. Well, we all have to have a little levity, you know, <laughs> these days. So I appreciated her her little joke. Well, we're all gonna die. Part of life. <laughs> it is, but in the meantime, we're gonna fight for 2020. Yeah, and um, our amazing Speaker of the House, mm -hmm. like the boss that she is. That's right standing up for herself or her values and for where we are at this really solemn and important moment in our history as a country. Yeah. And she's speaking out about, about the thing that the Republicans are going to continue to come back to the Democrats with, which is you just don't like this guy. You're pissed because Hillary lost. And now right. this has been from day one, from before he was even sworn in, you've been talking about impeachment. And it's not about not liking him, although he is uniquely unlikable. This is I do find him <laughs> extremely unlikable as a person. This is about him being completely unfair 
benefit, him violating yeah. the Constitution, him violating his oath of office, and for the Republicans to be in complete denial for about that and make this about like a personality issue is absurd. Well, let me push back on that a little bit because I really don't believe, in fact, I know the Republicans are not in denial about this. Like they know what the president has done. They know that what the president has done is impeachable mm -hmm. and is wrong. They are making a uh, specific choice in how they respond to that to try to stay in power and keep this president in power. It's a great point. And it's one of those things that regardless of where impeachment goes, voters are really going to have the last word in November, not only when they elect a new president, but when they look at the people who are lying to keep him in office, who mm -hmm. are the people who months before the election, you know, were willing to call him unfit and crazy. Right. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's the greatest thing since Reagan, you know. <laughs> they so, haven't changed their mind. Yeah. But they're changing their words and that makes them liars. Exactly. And uh, they need to be voted out. They do. And the speaker in response did make a very great distinction. What is for the ballot box, mm -hmm. you know, what we're voting on in terms of policy differences that we have and um, what is for impeachment and why we are down the road that we are on right now. So we're recording this hours after House Democrats formally issued two articles of impeachment. Right. How uh, do you feel about that, by the way? Two articles. I mean, there are so many possibilities. I was wondering how many articles they would file. They filed two. Mm -hmm. One is abuse of power and one is obstruction of Congress. You know, I think that the list of potentially impeachable offenses is as long as my arm and my arms are incredibly long. People can't see them. But you do have freakishly long, long arms. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I think what they're trying to do is keep it focused on Ukraine because right. it's less risky that way. The Ukraine situation is what they've been laying out in all of these impeachment hearings. If they start getting into Russia and the FBI, I think that opens them up to a lot more uncertainty. Yeah. Since you brought up Russia and the FBI, uh, another thing that's happened this week is the IG's report mm -hmm. on the Russian, the origins of the Russian investigation and was their political influence in the FBI's investigation mm -hmm. of the Russian interference came out. And um, to summarize, nope, no political interference. This is what the right. Inspector General's report has stated. But we're getting some pushback from Trump's mm -hmm. handpicked. Uh, no, no, no. Listen, he's supposed to be the country's attorney general. Yes. But whatever. He's one of Trump's minions. So the inspector general from this, the Trump from administration's the own Justice Department made this report. And Barr is, uh, of course, just he's the, the, he's Trump's lapdog. Yeah. Well, listen. I wanted to say something stronger, but. Mariah wouldn't let me. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So no, no spying, no Obama-led conspiracy, no FBI partisanship. There, you know, there was some mistakes that the FBI made for sure that you know they cop to in this report, but um, it certainly wasn't the sinister witch hunt that that Trump and his allies have been making it out to be for years. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about what brought us joy this week and what pissed us off this week. Mariah, 
Let's hear your joyful rant. My joyful rant also includes a call to action. So it's the holiday season, which I love. I know everybody doesn't love it and I get that, but I like it just makes me feel good and hopeful and reflective and all that good stuff. And so there's all these holiday parties that everybody goes Mm -hmm. to. And so I've been going to some and, you know, you meet people and you're talking about your lives and blah, 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 blah. And I've been getting people to subscribe to how we win. Oh, at the holiday party, which I'm sure they really appreciate, you know, as they're waiting in line for a drink. It's a gift for them. <laughs> Me being You're like, pull inviting out your phone. them to the party. You're getting them involved. Yes, I want to encourage everybody over the holiday season as you're going to parties and you're catching up with family to say, hey, here's this great podcast. Now, people don't like pulling out their phones to do work at holiday parties, but everybody's looking for an, a, a good podcast to listen to. And so they appreciate having something new because I think scrolling through the list can be a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. So recommend how we win. I love it. That brings me joy. Just your whole your whole segment right there brought me joy. There we go. Deliverer of joy during the holidays. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> you know, I mean, just to take it a step further, though, it's hard sometimes to ask people to engage because you feel like you don't want to bother someone or whatever but it's important to know that when you're inviting someone to be part of Mm -hmm. this movement and and to get involved and volunteer subscribe to the podcast whatever you're you're inviting them to be part of this thing that is bigger than all of us that is going to really have an impact on these important elections it's an opportunity for them it's like inviting them to an awesome awesome party and yeah. you also, for anyone that does this work and uh, and volunteers, you know how much better it makes you feel to be an active participant. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, with everything that's going on in this country and this historic moment we're having with impeachment and with this terrible fascist president, you are either into action or you are complicit with your complacency. Mm, powerful. So now let's hear what brings you joy. Well, um, I'll say having these impeachment articles filed brings me joy, but not just because the House is doing their constitutional duty to keep this president accountable, that Mm -hmm. no one's above the law, Mm -hmm. but also because it makes me think back on all the good work we did during the midterms to elect this Congress. This Congress is doing what we elected them to do, and elections have consequences. So Mm -hmm. uh, it really brings me joy to have worked so hard over the last, you know, three years and knowing all the volunteers who have just given so much of themselves, of their time, of their money, Mm -hmm. of their talent, and to see that come to fruition here. Obviously, we know that uh, impeachment is the calendar's blocked off in January for the trial in the Senate. They need a two-third majority to do it. Um, It's unlikely to zero chance that he will be removed from office from the Republican-controlled Senate. That just shows you, again, elections have consequences, and we have a very important job to do in 2020. But it brings me joy to see our elected representatives doing what we sent them there to do. That's a great reason to be (laughs) joyful, for sure. And um, 
What pisses you off, Mariah? Um, I'm really frustrated about next week's Democratic debate and that there are no people of color who have made it onto the debate stage. And I understand that with so many candidates running, which I think is a huge mistake for us, but with so many candidates running, you do have to have some sort of parameters in place. But I don't think that they have, have come up with the right parameters. I think that asking the candidates to focus on number of donors, even even if it's small dollar donors, but number of donors is sending the wrong message for, for what our party is supposed to be. Um, and yeah. I, you know, I question the polling that's taking place. I think that when you are ex- consistently excluding the people who have the least economic power in the country traditionally, and have the biggest hill to climb when it comes to running for president, then it's a huge mistake. And, and we're going to see that um, in, in uh, next week. I think it's a really great point. And I don't know, like, um, I don't dig deep into polls, but, you know, I don't know what demographic they're going out to for these polls, too. Well, I mean, I think the last they one was in New Hampshire. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, that's but the New Hampshire is not a representative, and that's not, not the only poll that's used. But it's not the representative group of people from you know of our country. I've never been polled. When is somebody gonna call me and ask me what I think? Right. Well, I wanted to know what you thought, <laughs> and so you. thank you for sharing your <laughs> anger and vitriol with us. Okay. <laughs> tell me what and has it's you well been. earned, and you're a hundred percent right. Yeah. Tell me what has you pissed off this week. Well, <laughs> what has me pissed off is uh, the attacks on food assistant programs, mm. food stamps, the SNAP program yeah. that is being shredded by the USDA. Every, I just, it's horrible, fascist, you know, mean, cruel policy after cruel policy from this administration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not just this administration. Republicans in general haven't been crazy about social programs, and they're mm-hmm. always looking to um, stop, quote-unquote, giving handouts. But, you know, when we're at a, at a point where the 1% is just has all the power, all the money, and it is so difficult for people who are living in poverty to lift themselves out of that. The simple act of giving them assistance so that their children and families have food, have Mm -hmm. food stamps, it is deplorable. These actions are absolutely unconscionable. And um, there's actually an action going on by Move On right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've got a petition and... um, We'll post the the petition on on yeah. our site, you know, because mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty long URL, or you can find it. But it says, "Tell USDA stop the attacks on food assistance programs for hungry Americans." Please, everybody, sign this petition. This is uh, something that should not go unnoticed and unspoken for. Agreed. Um, it's it's very angering. It's anger making. It's anger making. Okay, um, so our now that we're all good and angry and fired <laughs> up, we've got one action item for the week, which is to um, sign Move On's petition a- around the food stamp cuts, or, uh, food and, assistance. Well, cuts. we have two. We have that, and we have uh, get people at their at your holiday parties to subscribe to oh, the that's podcast. Right. Yeah, we have so much to do. This <laughs> two <week>. actions. <laughs> <laughs> what and, else should people be doing? Well, we're, um, you know, we're on, this feels like a pledge drive, but we're, 
Um, we're on our end of the year push at Swing Left. Mm-hmm. To um, We talked about this last week. Mm-hmm. We don't often ask for money other than raising money for candidates, raising money for the Senate, which right. you should definitely be doing. I right. mean, obviously, we need to put pressure on these senators who are going to be uh, voting on impeachment next next month. Mm-hmm. But we do you know, need to keep the, the doors open and the phones ringing at Swing Left. I don't actually... That is a pledge drive. <laughs> <laughs> phones ringing. I don't know if we actually use phones. I think it's all... Slack and Zoom calls and stuff. But anyway. But those cost lots of money. It does. Yeah. Um, So if you appreciate the work that we're doing Mm -hmm. and want to support it, uh, you can go to swingleft.org slash giving and uh, and donate to Swing Left. And are the e-cards part of this? Yes. Well, we have – if you go to the Swing Left store, we have these really cool e-cards, holiday e-cards that you can give as gifts to people for the holidays. Uh Um, And uh, they're super cool. Check them out. They're fun. So that's your pledge drive. For our interview today, we got to sit down and talk with Christine Pelosi. Great conversation. So great. She had so much interesting information to share. And for those of you who don't know about Christine Pelosi. A lot of people don't because she's really behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But she's not just Speaker Pelosi's daughter. She is uh, extremely influential Mm -hmm. and and active working with her mom, uh, working uh, with the California Democratic Party. And uh, as a DNC member, Mm -hmm. she has a lot of uh, influence. So it was really cool to sit down and get her kind of insider take on impeachment, on her mom, and all of those things. Great. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. Attorney, author, and advocate Christine Pelosi has a lifetime of grassroots organizing and public policy experience. Christine conducts leadership boot camps based on her books, Campaign Boot Camp Basic Training for Future Leaders, and Campaign Boot Camp 2.0. She's also served as a prosecutor in San Francisco, special counsel in the Clinton-Gore administration, and chief of staff on Capitol Hill. Ms. Pelosi currently serves as the California Democratic Party Women's Caucus Chair. She has a brand new book out, The Nancy Pelosi Way, Advice on Success, Leadership, and Politics from America's Most Powerful Woman. (laughs) Christine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Anything new happening in the news today, guys? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to talk about your book um, because it's it's really fascinating. But we got to talk about the fact that a few hours ago, uh, your mother, Speaker Pelosi, announced that the House would begin drafting impeachment articles against Trump. Um, is this something that you guys talk about at dinner or on the phone? <laughs> well, the funny thing is we're probably the only – political family in America that did not talk about impeachment over Thanksgiving dinner. In fact, we usually don't talk about politics at dinner. We talk about sports. We talk about movies. Um, The kids talk about their lives. So one of the things um, that I talk about in the Nancy Pelosi way is my mom's ability to put it on the shelf, Mm. as she says, and have a life outside of politics so that you can go back into politics refreshed and renewed by your friendships, by your relationships and just by your your quality of life because you can't be fighting for a quality of life for other people unless you're also actively trying to nurture one for yourself. 
Mm. Right. So when we're not putting it on the shelf, um, how can we as individuals get involved in this impeachment process? Is there something that you think we should be doing that would be helpful to the House members who are uh, drafting articles of impeachment? I think it's really important for us to follow the facts to actually read the synopsis of the testimony and reread the synopses of the Mueller report, which really set forward the basis right. uh, for which we saw the connection that Trump had to Russia. Again, just a little bit of history to remember. Remember uh, watching the Sochi Olympics and the athletes going to the athletes' village in Russia at Sochi and saying, gosh, this looks like a, a terrible, dilapidated place, mm-hmm. and and uh, they were asked not to tweet out the pictures too right. late. And everyone said, well, where'd all the billions of dollars go, mm. right? And for the first time in his rule, suddenly Putin was getting some very, very, very bad press at home because he had embarrassed Russia with this, you know, slapstick village, and it was clear that he had pocketed the money or interests had pocketed the money, but they hadn't gone to the Olympics. And in order to reestablish his dominance, what did he do? He went and invaded Crimea. He went and invaded Ukraine. And what did the United States do in response? Um, The Obama-Biden administration slapped sanctions on Russia for the illegal invasion of Ukraine. The response was that Putin stopped adoptions to the United States Mm -hmm. from Russia And that was one of the big fights in the presidential election of 2016, where three and a half years ago, Hillary Clinton, the presumptive nominee for the Democrats, was saying, no, those sanctions are going to stay in place until you cease and desist your your actions against and in Ukraine. And Donald Trump, on the other hand, was in the middle of having a meeting supposedly about Russian adoptions, which were only about adoptions if you understand that they were in exchange for sanctions, and um, changing the platform of the Republican Party from being very pro-Ukraine to being very pro-Putin, something that really disturbed a lot of Ukrainian Americans who were in communities that were very pro-Republican. So that was a very, very big change. So I say all this to say the Mueller report then goes through systematically what happened over a period of several months where uh, Paul Manafort has this peace plan even after, long after he's been fired, Mm -hmm. um, to have an East Ukraine set up where they would have independent elections and then a pro-Putin East Ukrainian would win and then therefore cement not only the desire to expand Putin's empire but also uh, to control the natural gas and the pipelines, um, which were, of course, the lifeline for Russia. So that is the basis for which Nancy Pelosi has said to Donald Trump, With you, all roads lead to Putin. So when we get to this summer and we get to the phone call where it's, we need you to do us a favor, though, Mm -hmm. um, and we find out that the bribery scheme was to force the newly elected Ukrainian president to make a public announcement that he was not only investigating corruption, but investigating the Bidens in particular. And of course, who is Mr. Biden? Mr. Biden is Mr. Trump's Um, potential rival for president in 2020. So I think it's important for people who want to support the procedures of impeachment to go back and look at the facts, understand the timeline, and understand particularly the Republicans 
and the career foreign service and military officials who were testifying against Donald Trump saying something is wrong here. Something is wrong here and we need to make it right. And our only opportunity to make it right is to pursue articles of impeachment. Right. And I I mean, I am not particularly bullish on the Senate actually uh, convicting him, impeaching him or removing him from office, I guess. But are there senators that that we can be putting pressure on? Do you have any insight there? Um, Is there any possibility that we could put enough pressure on a few of these senators who might have trouble holding on to their seats in 2020? I think that what we should do is encourage each and every member of Congress and each and every senator to follow the facts, to read the reports, and to commit to the fact that no one is above the law. I think that when we start talking about it in terms of political strategy, we lose the the essence of the facts. It reminds me of the days when I was a prosecutor and be picking juries. And one of the things that you do when you're picking a jury is something called voir dire. Two things. Number one, do you have an association with this person? And number two, the question is always, could you be fair? Hmm. Could you be fair in judging somebody else? And most of the time, the jurors would say yes. And so I think that is the same question we have to ask each and every member of Congress and each of the House of Representatives and of the United States Senate, which is, Can you be fair? Can you read the facts and follow the law and apply the Constitution? Because if you're telling me that you can't be fair because you're too blinded um, by your party loyalty to really see clearly as to what the prescription is, what is the crime we're trying to stop, what is the behavior that we are attempting to deter and condemn— If you're not able to do that, then why are you taking an oath to the Constitution? So I think that what we should do is focus on asking all of them. Everybody should put pressure on their own members of Congress and their own senators. And by that, if if they already say that they're um, for pursuing an inquiry, look at the facts yourself and talk to them about what those facts mean to you. Right. And and think again about those people who were testifying about what they thought was supposed to be a constitutional process that was illegally upended by Donald Trump. Yeah, I think the frustrating part in watching all of these hearings is that it's clear that some of the people who will be voting can't be unbiased, can't separate themselves from their party and, and just look at the facts. And in fact, um, a few hours ago, a reporter asked Speaker Pelosi if she hated Donald Trump. And uh, it, and it, it seemed like, you know, maybe you can give us some insight into this. It seemed like she was incredibly offended by the question and went on to talk about why she prays for Trump regularly, that she disagrees with him, but she doesn't hate anybody. Which was a really wonderful well, I think there's moment, a couple of things there. and shows her power as well. Well, it shows her her deep faith. She's always been a person of deep faith. And when I talk about the Nancy Pelosi way and her growing up in Baltimore, in Little Italy, Baltimore, in the parish of of St. Leo's Church, where they had their Sunday suppers and their spaghetti suppers and cakewalks and and mass and mm. and how she was educated by the nuns at the Institute of uh, Notre Dame, met my father, Paul Pelosi, at a Catholic University, Georgetown University. By the time she ran for Congress— um, 
we had at that point, I think, 48 years of Catholic school education among the five kids at the <laughs> wow. Convent of the Sacred Heart. That was before we even got to college. So, like, our family has over a 100 years of Catholic school um, education. And so one thing my mom has always said is that she prays for all presidents, Democratic, Republican. She pay, you know, she prays constantly um, for the country. In fact, I think that one of the reasons that she gets rent-free in Donald Trump's head is because she has a deep reverence for the Constitution and for the presidency, in fact, far more reverence for his job than he has. Yes. And she constantly has that that thing that she does to him that she did to me um, constantly <laughs> growing up and, and still occasionally now. I want to hear uh, this. <laughs> come on. You, you, you know, to paraphrase Elijah Cummings, come on. You know you're better than this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that work on him? I can see it working on you, but I'm not sure about him. Well, it does work on him. It gets him completely shook, and he then, uh, you know, sends out a treat, a tweet, which is really a self-diagnosis projected at her. <laughs> He's obviously very nervous today, so the word was n- nervous. Uh, so hmm. he picks he picks adjectives and adverbs that describe his current state of self-diagnosis, and uh, <laughs> and that's just really, really clear. So the fact of the matter is she's got him shook because she cares deeply about the country. If it were just about emotion, they would have impeached him months ago over horrible things that he has done, kids mm-hmm. in cages, cutting food stamps for people, right. throwing people off health care. There's a bunch of policy decisions that he has made that have actively harmed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans, which is why we won back the House in 2018, because those millions of Americans rose up and voted to say, resist, no, stop, protect our care, improve our care, don't cut us off care, for example. So the fact of the matter is, emotion is only going to get you so far in politics, particularly negative emotion. Yeah. Deep what? patriotism is what makes things built to last, and that's who she is, and that's why she refused to be mischaracterized. Um, and then when we find out that the reporter who who asked the question was someone who was me too'd off a of Fox um, <laughs> network for sexual harassment of right. employees, it's like, really? You're going to ask somebody else about their values? Give me a break. Yeah, I did read that. Yeah. You are in just such a hyper-partisan world now. I grew up in D.C. My family's grew up in D.C. And uh, so I've seen partisanship for a long time. But, you know, this is completely new. This is different. And um, even with Democrats, your mother is a hero one moment and getting all kinds of criticism the next moment. And, you know, that's that's what happens when you're a leader and when you're in that position. But how do you all stay sane and, and focused with, with all of that going on, with all of the attacks? Or what's your, your technique for just keeping moving forward? We respond, as she said this morning, we respond with love. What makes my mom the happiest is hearing about our kids um, always. Uh, she loves being a grandmother. It's her favorite role out of anything. Mm. And uh, I can always tell when we're talking politics, I can tell when she's had enough and she's ready to put it on the shelf because she'll say, how's Bella? How's Octavia? (laughs) And that's code for, you know, we're done. If you want to stay on the phone, you can be telling me stories about my grandchildren. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm out. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think think the key is to say, you know, she loves movies. She loves sports. She is, you know, a 
a very, very, very big San Francisco Giants fan, and she's uh, as are you. Know, so you. We often as, well, <laughs> I don't know that anyone could be a bigger fan than me. But right. <laughs> I have to tell you a story about the cover of the book because the cover of the book has this um, this fire coat uh, on on it, and what happened was in. 2012, San Francisco Giants won the World Series, and then Barack Obama was reelected president. So we were, like, in our glory. I mean, how could we be happier, right? <laughs> right. The World Series, the presidential election, <laughs> it was great. So we went shopping to um, for clothes for, um, to wear to uh, President Obama's inauguration. And so we were shopping, and we saw this coat, and I said— um, it comes off more red on the cover, but it's actually more orange. And I said, Mom, that is an awesome coat. It's orange for the Giants. You could wear it for the Giants oh. on the podium with Barack Obama. And she bought it, and she did. And then six years later, she went to the closet, pulled it out, wore it over to the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, you might remember the visual of her inside the meeting. She's wearing a green dress and mm-hmm. um, sitting posture perfect in this meeting with, you know, Trump is slumped over. Mike Pence is sitting back in his chair with his eyes closed waiting for the rapture um, or some sort of deliverance to get him out of there. And Chuck Schumer is kind of brawling with, you know, with Trump and getting him to say shut down, Trump shut down, Trump shut down. And they're fighting over whether or not we should keep the government open or force uh, Congress to fund the wall that Mexico is supposed to pay for. And so in the middle of this, Trump says— Oh, Nancy can't really talk here, you know, because, you know, we, we know we're just going to have to talk later, implying mm-hmm. that she could not speak on behalf of the House Democratic Caucus because she didn't yet have 218 votes mm-hmm. for reelection as speaker. And that is when she said, Mr. President, Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength I bring to this meeting right. as the leader yes. of the House Democrats who just won a great victory. So she said that she told him he didn't have the votes. To get his wall. And with that, she left, slipped the coat back on, put on her sunglasses, and stepped into meme history. Exactly. So we and were a thousand like, memes we were, like, were born. Mom, you of both moments. And we were like, Mom, you can't believe it. And she was like, Really? I was just putting on my sunglasses. And we were like, Oh, come on. You had to, <laughs> what are you talking about? So it's one of those things where she always says, criticism and effectiveness go hand in hand. So she's used to all the criticism. It's a fact of life. And as she always says, if she wasn't effective, she wouldn't be criticized. She's she, When there were 137,000 negative ads last campaign cycle against her calling her a San Francisco liberal, you had San Francisco liberals saying she wasn't liberal enough, and you had conservative candidates saying, I can't run and vote for Nancy Pelosi. And her response to everybody was, just win, baby. <laughs> and right. Because she was like, we just have to win. Um, Nancy Pelosi has always said, I mean, from the time that she first ran for Congress when people were being awful to her, and she'd say, well, they can't take my children from me, so nothing else can hurt me. But when you work with families where their children were taken from them by disease or by violence or by institutional indifference that led to disease or violence, uh, that's such a motivating factor to say, it doesn't matter what you say about me. I can't look these families in the eye and say, I couldn't go out and fight for your health care or the safety of your kids because Trump mean tweeted me today. Mm. Mm. Right. Well, you're right. The cover of the book is perfection. So we'll have to <laughs> – we'll, we'll tweet it out so that people can, can that, take a look at That and the clap that just those two <laughs> memes alone are, are the best. 
So you you have all this great advice for future leaders in your first book, in the campaign boot camp and in 2.0. How has your advice for those leaders, for organizers, changed since you wrote that first book? The first book I wrote actually came out of a training that I did in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention. So it was the summer of 2004, and there was a group that was started called Democratic Gain. And the idea was let's go to the convention, and rather than having the people who didn't make the nomination do a shadow convention where they would be just attacking the Democrats who were on the ticket or were endorsing the ticket, we the, the thought was let's bring everybody together and train them on um, democratic politics. The Kerry campaign did a very smart thing by hiring some people from the Dean campaign to run the field. And they asked some of us who were active in politics to come in and share some perspectives. So I did my very first um, campaign boot camp, and it was on winning the House one House at a time because we had had three special elections in Kentucky, South Dakota, and North Carolina in the spring of 2004 that were all victories for the Democrats that we thought could be harbingers of winning the House, which we did eventually in 2006. So I came in with lessons from them, and I talked about three things. The House meetings, Mm -hmm. doing – making our own media. Hello, podcast. um, (laughs) And election protection. And so in some ways, like those block and tackle things are still the same. But what has changed, I think, is the nature in which – we share the theory of change, which is the power of story. Mm-hmm. And I talk about this in my third book in the Nancy Pelosi way. About Nancy Pelosi has always been naturally shy. Her father was a very, very, very eloquent mayor of Baltimore. Her brother gave a barn burner of a speech. Uh, my Uncle Tommy, who, who, who passed a few weeks ago, oh, um, sorry. also a mayor of Baltimore. Thank you. She very shy. I can remember being in a parade with her in San Francisco as we were uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the San Francisco quake and saluting the firefighters. So we weren't celebrating the quake so much as the resilience of the city and the ongoing service of the San Francisco Fire Department. And I'm dancing down Market Street and she's like, are we getting any closer? I was like, mom, we're going to the ferry building. The bigger it gets, the closer we are. (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't. You know, these parades, they don't want to see me. They want to see the firefighters. They don't want to see politicians. I'm dancing along and having fun, you know seated in the car, but car car dancing to her <laughs> bewilderment and perhaps embarrassment. And she looked over and she said, you inherited none of my natural shyness. And I said, oh, I probably skipped a generation. But here's the thing. What we used to do was tell other people's stories. So you would say, let me tell you a story about a firefighter. Let me mm. tell you a story about a veteran. Let me tell you a story about a healthcare patient. And with permission, here's the story. And we would organize people around lifting up a handful of stories that were sort of allegorical tales, but that were meant to inform data. Well, what has changed now is that everybody's telling their story. Right. It's not just one or two families. It's everybody. In the third book, in the Nancy Pelosi way, we talk about 10,000 grassroots events where each person at each of those 10,000 grassroots events was telling their own story. Mm. And we also built a network of community support around that so that if you come forward and tell your story, we will have your back. And I think the difference between Nancy Pelosi, her first meeting with the Democratic speaker in the Democratic Speaker's office was when she was elected as the Democratic Speaker. Hmm. Wow. So they didn't invite people. They 
just shows you they, they didn't really mark her for leadership. They never mm-hmm. had her in the spe- in the Democratic Speaker's office. But she, in turn, not only brings in freshmen all the time. I mean, they have a weekly mm-hmm. standing right. meeting with the speaker in the speaker's office. So it's a complete culture change the first time she came speaker. But now, if you look at her press conferences, it's the little lobbyists. It's the mm-hmm. it's the women from – and it is mostly women, mostly black women from the Fight for 15. It's the veterans at their roundtables. They're telling their own stories with the biggest microphone that exists outside the president's, which is the speaker's microphone. And I think that new expectation – that power will be responsive, and not just that we speak truth to power, but that power will bear witness to truth. That, I think, is what has changed. And as the leader of the House Democrats, Nancy Pelosi has been a leader in that change. And when you think about that kind of collaborative leadership that says, you tell your own story, and I'm going to use the power of the speakership to hand you a microphone, and then to back you up when you get attacked. Not only does that empower individuals, but think of all the people watching from home or watching from the McDonald's picket lines or watching from the hospital waiting rooms as they see their friends, their everyday American friends, standing up there on the podium with the Speaker of the House making their own media. That's so powerful, and that's definitely how we connect with each other now, especially in this environment, the rifts we have. But when we talk to people either one-on-one or when we use a platform and share our stories, that's how we connect and um, and build our power. So it's, it is an amazing uh, change to have – that podium to speak from for these, you know, everyday Americans who are struggling and sharing their stories. Um, That's really, really powerful. Also, I have to say, one of the chapters in your book is don't agonize, organize. That's swing left's motto. So (laughs) we really appreciate that. Perfect. All right. Hey. (laughs) So, you know, for for just your average volunteer who's looking to make an impact and and be effective with their resources coming into 2020, um, What's your advice to them? Well, all love to swing left. We've had so much fun with you all in San Francisco and across the country. Uh, Your volunteers have been incredible, amazing, and really taking personal responsibility to make change. I was looking over um, some notes that someone had typed up back in the days when we typed things out and (laughs) printed them out on that, like, analog-looking typewriter. Uh, It was probably a Wang computer that we thought was really impressive (laughs) in 1987. But it was notes on Nancy's rap from her first house meeting. And she's saying things like, take personal responsibility, don't agonize, organize. Um, Her big issues were jobs, peace, justice, um, ending the Contra aid and the war in El Salvador, and um, and you know, fighting, drilling off the coast of San Francisco, bringing in jobs. I mean, it was really interesting because a lot of. I mean, she basically could be giving the same, other than the Central America piece, <laughs> right. slightly different. She would give the same speech right now, but the point is, um, I think for people to know their power and to you, reason that it's always been her motto and that it has. It is your motto, too, at Swing Left, I think, if I may be uh, so presumptuous as to guess, is that it is so difficult to absorb the pain and the what-ifs that came out of the election of 2016. Politics are tough. They've been tough for a long time. I know it maybe has not ever been as hyperpolitical partisan to some, but 
for me, I guess because I'm Nancy Pelosi's daughter, it always was that rough for mm-hmm. us uh, and always was that rough for her. What's changed is her ability to build an army of support um, on the, in the digital space and not just the physical space. And, and Swing Left, of course, is a big part of of promoting that progressive agenda. So thank you. I think that what we each need to do is look inside ourselves and say, what is my why? What is my purpose? What is my call to service? What is the one thing of all of the things that keep me up at night or that get me going? What is the thing that I want to change? And how do I want to model that change in my community? And then say, where can I find candidates who align with that? Because I don't want to feel the agony and the agita, as we Italians mm-hmm. would say, yeah. <laughs> the agita, uh, the surus, right, is, uh, you know, that every every culture has a word for it, of feeling as if there are people in our community who are vulnerable, who are hurting, and are made more vulnerable by the actions of this administration. And so what can I do to make concrete change? How can I work with people in a disciplined way to feel as though I'm building a sense of community and a sense of possibility and showing myself, my kids, if you have them, or the, or the people that you that you mentor and that you organize with, how can we together start to do the repair, to do the healing that's necessary in our community? And I think that that comes down to two things. One, as I said before, right now, as we're focused on impeachment, to say, look, let's go back to basics. Let's go back to rereading the Constitution. Let's go back to rereading the source documents for the impeachment. And you find people who could be a part of the repairing of the breach, right? People like the ambassadors, uh, people like um, Mm. the career foreign service officers who have a lifelong commitment to building democracy and building peace and making America stand for something. So I'd say look at that and I'd also say look very, very locally uh, in your community and make sure where you can volunteer, put in some time. It's the holidays now. Everybody must have one warm coat, at least in their closet, that they're not using that they could give to somebody else. Mm. Um, There are so many ways that are small. Mm -hmm. But if everybody said, I have a few books that I don't read, I have a coat that I don't wear, I've got some toys for a drive, if everybody was doing that, then it would all add up to that larger sense of building community. And I think that that most important part of um, watching my mother, Nancy Pelosi, build out Team Pelosi, it wasn't just all of the all of our phone banks and precinct walks and things like that that we do together, but also okay. uh, the volunteer services that we do together at the AIDS Grove or her annual uh, – Thanksgiving traditions of going to the interfaith breakfast and then to serve mm-hmm. meals at St. Anthony's dining room so that people can just get a sense of not only putting public service out into the world, but then putting that on the shelf and putting personal service into the world so that, as I said at the start, we're cultivating that beloved community, that quality of life for ourselves that we want to defend for other people. Yeah. I think that the book makes all of that so accessible, which is why I I, I just love it and and can't wait for people to read it. Um, Our final question that we ask everybody as we wrap up the interview is, um, what gives you the most hope for our future? 
Well, read the acknowledgement section of the Nancy Pelosi way, and you'll see all sorts of individuals and organizations who give me hope. What gives me hope is my 10-year-old daughter, Bella, who every day is pushing me, Mom, why haven't they solved this problem? Mom, why haven't they solved that problem? When she was five, her kindergarten class um, wrote to my mom and uh, their congresswoman. She's kind of doomed, isn't she? (laughs) (laughs) and said, what are you going to do about pollution? We have a lot of problems, but we're going to start with the problem of pollution. And uh, and they were – so from the start, I think that this super young generation – the fact that at 10 years old, you know, Bella was like, well, we're going to ban plastic straws. And I said, well, talk to Sasha. So she talked to Sasha Bittner, swing left volunteer, mm-hmm. um, very yeah. active in the community <laughs> right. of disabilities, and, and has cerebral palsy. And Sasha said, well, I have to use plastic straws because, um, you know, the paper ones melt and um, – I could have a seizure with uh, an aluminum one. So then she said, okay, well, minimize plastic straws because of Sasha. Like if only public policy could happen as quickly (laughs) as in the mind of a 10-year-old. But she had it down because the point is – uh, that young generation, they're, they're climate striking, they're, they're fighting for health care, they're fighting for a better future. They're insisting that the older generations who might have messed it up still act to fix it. And rather than saying, you failed, we're going to fix it, they said, you've messed up, you better figure out how to fix it, and we're going to lead the way and show you. So what gives me hope is this network that we've been able to build collectively as a movement, the the movement contributions of Nancy Pelosi, but also the movement vision of the newest people to politics and the youngest people in the coalition who honestly think— that there is a life post-45 and a hope post-45, and they are going to demand that we have the equality, the equity, the respect that uh, the founders promised us. And they're going to collect on that promise. That's what gives me hope. That gives me hope, too. You give me hope. Thank you for all that you do and Please pass along our great thanks and admiration to your mother who is on the front line, tip of the spear, protecting our democracy right now. And also a big shout out to uh, your friends at Swing Left in San Francisco because that powerhouse group is just bananas, the work they're doing. So all of the they things. They are great. Thank you, Swing Left. All of the things. And thank you both for a wonderful interview the Nancy Pelosi way. Don't forget to buy it, gift it. And if you're in San Francisco, I'll sign it. So find me. Oh, Agnes nice. Pelosi on Twitter. We'll put a link up on our site, too, um, so people can find it there as well. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today and for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We want to hear from you, and we want your story. Send us a note or even record yourself and email it to podcast at swingleft.org. Thank you to all of our subscribers. If you aren't a subscriber yet, please do so and rate us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family at all of your holiday parties (laughs) (laughs) and help us build this megaphone for the resistance. When you're sharing on social, use the hashtag HowWeWin2020 and share our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And don't forget to sign up on swingleft.org to volunteer. We really appreciate you being here with us and are excited to bring you more from the field next Wednesday. Mm-hmm.